My guest today is a new old friend of mine, uh, a great man, um, a hyperactive man, a man who does not sleep. My guest is Joe Weisenthal. Joe, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Does it offend you? Did it offend you that I just called you hyperactive? No, I, I don't mind that. I'm more that a little annoyed by all the focus on my lack of sleep. Like it just always comes yeah, up. But you don't sleep. I don't. I don't sleep don't that, sleep much, that much, much. But every time you know, I like meet one of my wife's friends or something. They're like, "Oh, you're the one who doesn't sleep." And I'm like, yeah, but yeah, you're the guy. I don't, you know, there's other stuff because that you I do. A, you know, I do TV, I cover the markets, but it's always like, oh, you're the guy who does. Well, we're going to get to that. I'm going to, we're going to get to that. So okay. I'm just going to say, let me just, I want to start by saying that, that there are people who are listening to this who may not know. I'm going to, pre- I'm going to have two things I want to preface this podcast with today. Okay. The first is, the first is you may notice that I sound really echoey. It's because I'm recording in my new office in my house, which is very empty right now and very echoey. So I apologize if you, if an echo bothers you, if you feel like you're in a large cavern listening to me, I'm very sorry. You and you, Joe, and also the listener. The second thing that I want to say is that, um, you know, I don't remember the second thing, but I think it was about basically about the fact that, um, we need to do a little bit of establishing who you are and what you do, because there are some people who are listening to this who may not know Joe Weisenthal, or they may know you and they think that your last name is pronounced Weisenthal. A lot of people think that. Um, would you say the majority of people that you meet think your last name is pronounced Wiesenthal? For whatever reason, that tends to be the first thing a lot of people call me. And it's been, it used to be awkward on TV and I would go on and people would say, with us is Joe Wiesenthal. And I've never, never totally sure whether to correct them or not because it's not that big of a deal. Um, but, but, but it's wrong. But you're yes, saying many it's wrong. people assume that's what it is. So Joe and I met when he came to work at Bloomberg. We worked at Bloomberg together. Um, and uh, everybody before Joe started at Bloomberg, everybody was like, Wheezy's coming. Get ready for Wheezy. That was a nickname that was given to you. I don't remember who I gave it know, to you. I didn't know that. They were like, oh, Wheezy. You know? And then um, when I met you, I was like, well, how's it pronounced? And you said, why is it all? And so I had to correct a lot of people. I spent actually several weeks telling people that they couldn't <laughs> call you. you Wheezy because it doesn't make sense because that's not how your name is pronounced. I don't no. think it stopped everybody. But at any rate, um, so Joe, Joe, can you tell us a little bit of your history? Joe c- came to Bloomberg yeah. from Business Insider, uh, where he uh, basically created uh, created a whole new style of uh, reporting on business news. But can you talk a little bit about your history? Tell us where sure. you where the I hell mean, you I'll came from. I mean, I'll just give you the uh, quick version of the long story. So basically, I moved. Uh, you know, I went to college at University of Texas. Uh, I studied international relations. I wasn't you know, studying economics or markets at all. When I graduated, I actually wanted to get into theater. My friend and I, my best friend at the time, we wrote um, two musicals together that we put on in Austin. They were sort of, I would say, big regional hits. They were very popular, and people came to see them, and we had several sold-out shows. And we wanted to take them to New York City and enter into a festival. And the idea was like, all right, we're going to take our shows to New York. We're going to be the hit of the festival. We're going to get an off-Broadway showing, and that will make our uh, career as you know, musical theater uh, impresarios or whatever. And then we got rejected from the Fringe Festival. We put together this great application. I still don't understand what happened, but we got rejected from the Fringe Festival. 
and we we, we plot. Do you think it could have been uh, anti-Semitism? No, I, I do. I would say that's very unlikely. <laughs> um, and I just, okay. I just, uh, I was so demoralized by that, by that, and I was so stunned. So you just to be clear, I want to, I just want to pause here for a second. So you were planning on becoming a. Um, a creator of musicals. Yes, that's what I wanted to do after college. That was your that was your career. That path. was the, you were going to write musicals, and that yeah, right. And, and we had written musicals. two, right, and okay. I was so sure we were going to get in. And then as soon as we got that rejection letter, I just quit my dreams instantly. I no perseverance whatsoever. <laughs> I just said that's it. Wow. I said okay. The instant we opened that letter, I was like, I'm done. I was just so stunned. You wouldn't have made it. No, you, I would you not have made, have made it. In the it. Trail. It, was, it was a real, I mean, is, no, no. I think it was a good lesson. Like sometimes you should just give up on your dreams really fast, fail fast. Wow. And uh, mm-hmm. so then I was at the time my actual paying job was working in a deli at a uh, natural foods co-op in Austin, making sandwiches, <laughs> serving people hummus, stuff like that. And I was getting a little wow. tired of that because I was making like five fifty an hour and. Uh, then I, um, but I, I had had an interest in markets for a while and I came to New York and I worked for a small company for one year that was, uh, run by a friend. Fortunately, I had a connection and I worked as a, uh, market analyst for one year, basically just looking at stocks and helping the company value them. That was great. But then they moved, uh, out of the city and I didn't feel like moving because, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was coming to New York, and I didn't. She wanted to be in New York, so I was basically uh, unemployed. I didn't have any traditional financial market skills, so I didn't think I could say go to work on Wall Street. I didn't have any other real world skills, so it wasn't obvious what kind of job I could get. Um, so I didn't really work at all. I started blogging. I started a blog called TheStalwart.com, basically because I thought blogs were really cool. It was, you know, it was 2005. They were still like. All the cool people had them. And I wanted to have a place to um, basically keep track of what I had been paying attention to at my job, take notes mostly for myself, just so I could you know, stay on the news, stay on the market, stay on the economy. And people started reading it. Not a ton, but I started getting more and more readers. And you know, so I actually harbored this fantasy of one day turning that into a professional thing and having the stalwart.com become this big sort of... Um, market you know market news site that could be a business but i ended up uh just go taking writing jobs i wrote for this site techdirt.com which still yeah. exists it's a tech sure. site then uh, i worked for paidcontent.org doesn't which, which a, doesn't exist anymore doesn't exist but it was one of the early really influential digital media sites that really covered the internet as an industry intensely and then uh and then starting in uh, october 2008 i joined what was then Silicon Alley Insider became Business Insider to cover Wall Street and financial markets. And that was perfect timing because October 2008 was when everything completely collapsed, the economy, the market. And so I really learned a lot because it was a great learning experience. Reporting on what was going on was like stepping up to a buffet every day. There were more stories than we knew what to do with. Because right. when the world is collapsing, that's very good for uh, it's good for business. Reporters. It's good for yeah. it's good for business. It is good for journalism. And that was also an exciting time because it was a time of great change in the media industry. In 2008, you didn't have BuzzFeeds and Voxes and Huffington Post was still very small. So all these new media brands that are major um, players today, those were the very early years of them. Actually, BuzzFeed did exist at that time, but it wasn't like a news operation or anything like that. It wasn't like the that. BuzzFeed no. that we know was, of now. Right. 
So that was in addition to being a good time for market journalism. It was also an amazing moment for, I would say, the professionalization of new media. You know, 2005, obviously, early 2000s, a lot of people got into blogging. And then it was the next few years afterwards that a lot of people sort of took those techniques and tried to scale them up to create major commercial media enterprises. Right. Which has, which has now happened. I mean, which is what we're dealing with. And now it's totally happened. I mean, all these, all these, yeah, it's absolutely right. So all these start, you know, tiny startups back then are major players that are making real money and have huge global uh, newsrooms. When I started at BI, we were basically a new, I think the newsroom was like six people, including me. (laughs) It was really tiny. I think it, I'm not sure exactly. I left um, late at late 2014, but I think it's probably around 150. They have an office in London. There's a California office. They have a sort of affiliated business insider Australia that is uh, sort of its own thing. But is, there, is there business in Australia? Is there? Do they do business there? There's quite a lot of uh, commerce in is Australia. Is there a stock market? Is there a stock market in Australia? There definitely is a stock market in Australia. And, <laughs> you know, Australia is, is a, fa- a, wa- a fascinating market in its own right because uh, they're one of these economies that's gone decades without a bust and possibly in large part due to the ongoing rise of China. They sell China a lot of commodities. And so there, Australia is one of the more fascinating economies to watch, especially as China slows down. But I guess we can get to that later. Uh, we're going to, yes, we're going to get to that. So I just want to, let me just say, um, so that I don't get too many angry sure. emails. Uh, I know that Australia has a market and uh, I know that there's <laughs> business done in Australia. I just want to say, because I'm sure there's right now, there's an angry Australian who yeah. began, started appending an email as he was, he or she was listening to this. Um, and of course, you if you never, do have a, a, you can never be too safe with uh, walking back your sarcasm. No, you can't. I'm going to walk back everything I say today, actually. Um, and of course, if you do have hate mail that you'd like to send me, you can send it to Magnus at Tomorrow Podcast. Magnus is, of course, my Swedish producer who will be responsible for um, handling whatever it is Joe and I produce today. So uh, let me two questions. Yeah. Uh, well, one, one, one question, because I think I forgot the second one, which is the second time that's happened. Uh, what why the stalwart where where does that come from what is that oh that's the funny thing so yeah that was the name of my blog that's also my twitter handle now it actually means nothing to me and uh, like it it literally (laughs) means nothing to me so what was happening was my friend and i who had the blog the stalwart.com i we we wrote it together and we were trying to think of names for a finance blog and all the names we we're, first, we're thinking of a really generic like market line and just these really generic yeah. names or, that sounded like a right. million other things. And then suddenly we were like, let's forget the idea of having anything market or finance in the headline. Let's just come up with something that sounds like it could be the name of an old newspaper or an old magazine. And just sounds like something that would be timeless. And so we're like, oh, let's call it the stalwart.com. And that was available and it literally means well, that's, nothing. That's a big, like, that's, that's the a funny big. thing. So my my handle, my name, I have no connection to it. I don't really care what it means. It was just sort of an it was an attempt to make a joke, or kind of like pretend we were this old serious thing when we came up with the blog name. And then in the early days of Twitter, like I think if Twitter were launching now, I might go with at Weisenthal or something like that. But at the time, even by two thousand eight pseudonyms were still much bigger on the internet than they were now yeah handles handles right um (laughs) even even like back then like or when twitter really got going it was less of a culture of using your real name all the time on everything and so maybe now 
Do I think that's good? No, no. I was going to say, do you think that's the Facebook influence? Mark Zuckerberg's influence? I mean, his whole trip was like, I you think, have one identity. Well, I, think it's prob- I think it's probably a big part of Facebook. I also think it's about professionalization. I mean, also, when I joined Twitter, I, I guess that was 2009 I joined. It didn't... I thought it was just this fun thing. I didn't think that it would be basically the primary way I get my news and distribute my news and talk to the people that I really respect. <laughs> Twitter has obviously been a huge... Uh, part of my career and I you know I owe a lot to it but at the time I didn't think it would be because I and so I think it's about professionalization now a lot of people their careers are in many ways on the internet and distribute through social media and so you know it just makes more sense if your career is that then use your right. real name you didn't take it I mean you didn't take it that seriously when you started using it you were uh no I just you know I was like oh yeah, people whatever. are on Twitter I mean, and Who cares? Tweeting, you know they're like down to south by southwest tweeting about tacos so I thought that's what I would do too right is that that's when you started is you were in uh it, it was, in the I south? was so I think Twitter well yeah Twitter I think really it was Mark it was the 2008 south by southwest where it really first got going yeah but I joined at the two that uh during the 2009 south by southwest was when i got on it so okay so so you started using it as a joke and now it's become the uh handle which everybody knows you as yeah. uh, nobody right. ca- and nobody can call you wheezy because of the pronunciation of your last name so it's a real problem correct um so anyhow so so you now we talked about sleep at the, the beginning and you're kind of like annoyed with the fact that people think that you don't sleep or that people bring it up but there was an article written about you yeah. or was was the new york times magazine that did it who did it the new yorker yeah, it was in the new york times magazine new york times magazine did a profile of you like in 2010 2011 what year was it do you remember the year uh it was I think it might have been early 2012. And the photo, correct it me if I'm wrong. Like, this is me just, I'm just riffing from memory here. But the, oh yeah. the photo, the main photo that was in the article was like a picture of you in bed. Is this right? Am yeah. I imagining this? You in bed on your so, yeah, laptop? No, the, the main photo is me in bed on my laptop and my wife sleeping next to me. Yeah. And like the photo was staged. We didn't, re- that is not, that's not a situation that happened. They didn't set up a camera on a timer in your bedroom. No, that's never happened. I mean, maybe once I like, you know, got my laptop. By so, the so wait, so, but the, so that whole scenario where you're in bed with your laptop and your wife is sleeping and the lights are out, it's like the blue screen is like lighting. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, my yeah, memory no, that, of it. I don't actually have, remember it. You have it exactly right. Well, I, yeah, you know, it's a very yeah, important it's a, article it's, for The me. photo is a, uh, is a staged photo. There were a number of okay, photos so. in it. Like they, they had a photographer go around. Basically what happened was they had a photographer follow me around starting at 4 a.m. one day, you know, lo- working me working in, at home, then me riding the subway, then me working in the office, then going out to dinner and all this stuff and then going home. And then I think it was like seven or eight at night and the photographer got a call from the editor and said like, Oh, could we get a photo of him in bed and stuff like that? It was only eight o'clock. I wasn't going to go to sleep yet. And right. so then they're like, all right, let's just, let's just, let's just make this, you know, we'll stage this photo. And that was the end of the day. It was a little you, bit, yeah. uh, a little bit, so, you know, I don't know. So I've never your, wife said had anyone, to, your wife had to agree to that. Yeah, she was fine with it. I mean, she, she didn't mind. She didn't mind. She thought it was funny. She, she didn't mind how false it was all seeming at the time, how it was a stay, completely staged situation. Do you regret do you regret <laughs> taking that photo? No, I mean, I think it was funny. I don't, I, I actually, it didn't occur to me that at the time that people would think that was a real photo. Cause people were like, oh, I can't believe, like, I just thought it was like, obviously like a funny sort of like a funny portrait basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that it was obviously this sort of over, over dramatized portrait to demonstrate that I'm this 
crazy workaholic, which was sort of how they positioned the article. Right, and so I was exactly. like, okay, that's a, that's like a funny staging. But then the, the number of people have come is like, oh, I can't believe uh, they took a photo while your wife was sleeping. And I was like, oh, you thought that was a real photo? Like, it just didn't occur to me that anyone would have thought that. So, Do you, But, you know, it's the New York Times. I think maybe people don't expect to see... Uh, Staged, maybe, Staged maybe photos, that was right. it. Yeah, it was the New York th- Times. Were there any other were there any other components of the article that weren't completely true to life? <sighs> um, all, I mean, it was all fact, it was all factually correct. I the the story was all you know. I like the story kind of made me seem like this insane manic workaholic without friends and without a life and it had some details like for example and i don't you know it, these are factual it's like had a detail like about how i had a bunch of stuff in boxes in my apartment right or something like that like to sort of insinuate that like i lived in this like ramshackle place that or maybe you i couldn't even you couldn't even unpack in. yeah but it was like i don't and i, I, I don't really know like that detail like d- whatever it was meant to convey i don't think I, did, I thought it, it was kind of a weird detail. Also, you it, was an- it has this infamous line that other people troll me about, about how I go to went to the bathroom a lot during the day that the reporter followed me. But part of that, yeah. to be honest, was like, it was kind of weird um, having a reporter right behind me all yeah. day. And so I decided to just step out a few times because that was... Um, yeah. You know, that was just uh, a, a nice way. Like, did the report insinuate you were? It was a number one or number two situation. Like, you were going to the bathroom, you were taking lots of shits, or you were you know just what? you were just I, urinating I, a lot. You know what, Josh? I, I don't think it got that detailed, to be honest. Okay. Did it? Was um, there a suggestion that maybe you were going to the bathroom to do cocaine? Do you think no, that was part I don't, of the? Like I said, idea? I don't think it got that detailed. It was just a line <laughs> that said like I went to the bathroom a lot, and people are like, it was right. just. You know what? It, it was not factually wrong. Right. Well, let me tell you I something. Just when I read it, let me tell you something. I've worked with you. Uh, I spent a lot of time around you, and and you really didn't go to the bathroom that much. So okay, I, this is really important. I'm gonna when this is posted, I'm going to clip this part. I, I mean, I'm gonna tell you. I, I actually gonna, think and, I'm a guy who goes, a, goes to the bathroom a lot. Frankly, this is this is a crucial exculpatory detail for any time someone and, uh, brings up and and I have a character. And I, and I don't think anything there was anything anything abnormal about how often you visit the bathroom. Uh, I just well, want, I'm glad you I didn't just say that the opposite. That's like you know, I, I spent a lot I, of time. I spent a lot of time thinking about it and frankly studying your bathroom behavior. Uh, so I think I can say that with some some level of expertise. So uh, I want to talk about. I want to talk about the mark. Can we talk about money? Can we talk about what's going on in the world Let's right talk now? About it. I want to talk about money moving. So you're. So here's the deal. I of course you know I worked at Bloomberg though. I'm not like I'm not like a market. Like I'm not into the market really, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm I follow major moves in the market, obviously, sure. like any like any person should. Um, but you know, I'm not like I don't like live and breathe what's going on in the stock market. On the other right. hand, you, I mean, in not just the stock market, but sort of all markets and but and all market you know, financial markets, currencies, right? Yeah. You, on the other hand, seem to um, you, you're like. I guess if I can compare this, because a lot of people listening to this are probably like really into like technology and gadgets, right? And so like, yeah. if you can imagine somebody who's like an Apple fanboy, somebody who's like obsessed with Apple that like follows all of their events that like goes to, you know, tries to go to every one of their announcements, you know, maybe like somebody who covers right. Apple for like an Apple blog or whatever. That's what you're like, except it's about like money, essentially about the movement of money in the world. Right. What, where does that come from? Like, where does that come from? Where does that obsession with the, with the movement of money come from? Like, what about it is attractive to you? What is appealing to you about it? 
it's just the best story because it really is the core of human behavior. Fear and greed are essentially <laughs> what markets, which, which markets swing back and forth between all the time. And it's about our, you know, like the often markets are in greed mode and people buy when things are going up and they want to make more and more money and they want to look for opportunities to squeeze every penny out of every transaction that they can. And that's like one natural human impulse. And then they panic and they, they run, they flee at the, at a, there could, at a sign of when things are getting bad. They hoard all of their money. They rush into cash. They rush into gold. They rush into safe things. And it's a constant back and forth pendulum between these two things. And of course, it's not constant because some people are fearful while others are greedy and some people are greedy while others are fearful and you can never really tell what's driving anything. But to me, the market is our closest read to the heartbeat, the pulse of humanity. And it's from, you know, it starts in Sunday afternoon, New York time, trading of currencies begins in Wellington, New Zealand. Right. And so from Sunday afternoon, New York time till Friday afternoon, New York time, it's this real time pulse of how humanity feels and it involves politics because political events always affect the market. It involves economics, obviously. It involves just, uh, you know, sheer human behavior. Right. And so I can't think of another story that essentially takes the temperature of humanity nonstop every second all around the world. There are markets in everything, everywhere. They're all quoted. You can see what's going on. And I just can't think of any other better way to really measure what humans are doing, feeling, thinking, caring about, worrying about than looking at financial markets. Well, it's in one way, that's a very dark uh, and depressing estimation of what's going on with humanity. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. I think I, I do I mean, agree that. I mean, other I mean, other things happen and other things are important to watch. But what's beautiful about Mar markets is the real time sensitivity. Something happens in Russia. So, you know, maybe there's a, uh, a an explosion. People don't know if it's a terrorist attack or maybe it's just an explosion. And people, you instantly see market reactions because people are, as a, that instantly gauge how people are digesting this news and then how that gets computed into changing the different attitudes right. of fear right. and I greed. Mean, or there's an or or someone new is elected, and uh, maybe a radical leftist is a, uh, elected in Greece, as we saw earlier this year, and instantly the political climate changes, and then it gets you know computed uh, into this sort of numerical expression of how people feel about what just happened. He's resigned now. Not a well, yeah, but it's a temporary technical resignation ahead of new elections that are happening. But I mean, he's not going to he's not going to yeah, make it. He's was, not going to uh, make another round, right? No, Can he we could. Assume that? He's uh, he's the favorite. So? Yeah, he is. But it's really? a, it's a tough well, that's strange. Race. Yeah. Why even then? Why even do it? What's the point? Um, because what's happened in Greece is his party, it's the sort of radical leftist party, has splintered kind of into two segments, which is the radical leftists and the radical radical leftists. And he's just the radical leftist who wants to work with the rest of the Eurozone on this bailout deal. And the more radical left wing of his party doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And in a parliamentary system, when your party starts to deteriorate, you basically have to call uh, new elections. And <laughs> right. so, yeah, we're having the second right. in a few weeks. There'll be the second election this year. That's interesting. I wonder if that's yeah. actually in some way more efficient. And more helpful. There's some, there's some merit to that kind of system. I mean, you, if you think, like, say, go back to 2011 after the in the U.S. when we had the big debt ceiling fight, and it seemed like we had this impossible standoff. Obviously, they got it resolved. But in a parliamentary system, 
if you had this uh, standoff where you just couldn't get anything passed, they would just call a new election and let the voters decide which way it would go. And so in a way, um, there's, some, <laughs> That'd be great. there's a, there's a flex, there's a flexibility to parliamentary systems that, uh, you know, our, our system doesn't have, obviously our system has advantages too, but you know, there, there are benefits to both. All right. So I want to, I want to take a quick break, uh, for an advertisement and then we're going to be back and I have some serious questions to ask you. All right, let's talk about fantasy football for a minute, because, you know, I think fantasy is superior to reality in just about every way. I want to talk about FanDuel. FanDuel week one games are almost here. Now, you may know this about me. I'm not a huge sports fan, but uh, Magnus, my producer, basically moved to America so he could watch American football. Uh, He's an obsessive sports fan. In fact, it's a little alarming how much he enjoys sports. Anyhow, Magnus is really looking forward to the Steelers premiere on September 1st against the Patriots, which he tells me is a game that's going to happen. And uh, preseason apparently has been weak for the Steelers thus far, but superstitious Magnus sees that as a good sign, uh, which may be troubling. I don't know if you follow the sport. Here's why you need to get on FanDuel. It's the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. They're paying out over $75 million, $75 million a week this football season, which is insane. Uh, they have a salary cap format. You can pick any players you want for just one week and entry fees start at just a dollar. So anyone can play. Now, obviously Magnus is playing FanDuel. Last year he did really poorly apparently. Uh, but you know, the more American Magnus becomes, the better he's getting at these types of games. Uh, and uh, he thinks that this year he tells me that everything is going to click for Panthers quarterback, Cam Newton, and that the Jets Bilal Powell has dark horse potential, which I'm told if you follow sports is very meaningful and insightful stuff. Anyhow, so Magnus is gearing up, obviously, for a big a big uh, season. Do you love FanDuel as much as Magnus? Tweet at me and tell me about it. My Twitter handle is, of course, Joshua Topolsky, at Joshua Topolsky. Uh, Magnus is, uh, is hiding on Twitter, but you can email him. You can email him at magnus at tomorrowpodcast.com. You can talk to him about FanDuel. I'm sure you guys can You'll have a great conversation. Anyhow, you can go to FanDuel.com right now and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner. Use the code TOMORROW and sign up now. There's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it with up to $200 that gets earned as you play. That's a bonus of up to 200 bucks. This offer is only good for the first 50 people that use the code TOMORROW, so don't forget, use TOMORROW. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Sign up today. All right, I'm back with Joe Weisenthal. Okay, I want to talk about I want to talk about what's going on in the market right now. We've just had two completely insane weeks. So so let me just yeah. preface this by saying I agree with you that well, I mean, I agree at least partially with what you just said about fear and greed. I mean, to me, having watched, you know, certainly being at Bloomberg gives you an um some insight into how markets work in a way you you get you get insight you would not get in most places. Right. Uh, and, um, but just generally speaking, having, having lived my life watching the way markets work and particularly the market in America, I mean, maybe this is true of the, of the entire world. I guess I only have from the American perspective, but it does seem that the main motivator 
for almost all of the decision making that happens is is fear really more than anything i mean mm-hmm. you know, i mean obviously greed is 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 the underlying motivation for all markets to exist i mean there's not like not like i don't think there's a lot of people who are who are dealing in in major movements of money and goods and commodities or whatever and thinking like Oh, I'm, this is going to benefit the world. Totally. You know, I think most people are like, how, what's, how much am I going to make yeah. off of this transaction? Right. But like the fear, the fear based thinking is kind of out of control. In my opinion, I mean, we have, our markets fluctuate so wildly. So can you talk about what just happened over the past sure. two weeks? Because we basically had, we had this, I guess at the beginning of this week, is it this week or last it's, week? It's really, we basically had like the really crazy day was, um, the 24th. That was one of the craziest days ever. So it was really this week. But it, I mean, but a right. lot of so what people had, are talking about essentially started like, rumbling last week, for sure. Right. But we had essentially like a near or like a crash, a market yeah. crash the, for, the, the NASDAQ, for a day. On Monday, uh, the NASDAQ opened down 10%. That right. Which was, is or, no, very bad. I think, no, sorry, I think bad. it was down 8%. Sorry. 8%. And the Dow opened down about 1,000 points. It was one of the most extraordinary opens I've ever seen. Right. Okay. So can you talk about how do we arrive at, and now we've, we've kind of recovered from that. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, so, from what I so, understand. Yeah. There's been a lot of recovery. So let's just, you know, let's set it. First, we need to go back a bit, which is that we've had an extraordinary historic stock market rally since the bottom of things in March, 2009. Um, and it's one of the, you know, one of the longest, biggest, most durable, least volatile stock market rallies in history. If you had money in the market in March 2009, you've done extraordinarily well. There's a lot of there's been a lot of view that okay, the market has gotten somewhat overvalued is a common thing based on historical metrics. The for the first time so that's making people nervous. For the first time since the financial crisis, it appears that the first Fed rate hike is truly in view. So the Fed has not only had interest rates basically at zero since the financial crisis, it's also done all these extraordinary measures like quantitative easing, going out in the market and buying treasuries, other um, unusual measures. But it appears for the first time that we're going to get a rate hike before too long. And so you right. have this combination... You, wait, hold on, hold on a second. Yeah. Can you just for the... for Listeners who may not know what yeah. that means, can you explain what a rate hike means and why that's sure. why that why people are concerned about the it? The Fed, yes, the Fed determines the cost of short-term borrowing. So basically, you know, the market determines the cost of money. So if I want to get a loan from you, Josh, I say I, I want to borrow this money from ten years. You'll set me a price. You'll be like, okay, I'll lend you this money, but I'm going to charge no, I you. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't do that deal. I won't loan that to you. Okay. <laughs> You know, but, I'm not lending you anything. Not, I, don't try, I, don't try, I don't trust that you'll pay back. Uh, let's, let's say someone who you trusted wanted to borrow money from you. <laughs> okay, I don't know if that person's out there, but let's just say that there is somebody like that. The, uh, you might say, okay, I'll lend you this money at uh, 10% per year or mm-hmm. something like that. That's the Fed bad. control, you know, and that's the market. Maybe like in other times when things are, you know, maybe the, the, the person who wants to borrow money is not very trustworthy, so maybe you want 20% per year. Like, you really want to get you know, paid like back Joe, for like the Joe risk you're taking. Like, if I were borrowing, sure. it would be like 20%. Yeah, yeah. The Fed controls the cost of very short-term borrowing through what is called the Fed funds rate. And so, you know, there are a lot of interest rates that are set by the market, but the Fed controls the short-term one. And the idea is that it, the Fed thinks that if it can, when it cuts the cost of money, if it reduces, yeah, the cost of 
short-term borrowing rate, then it can stimulate lending. And so when the economy is weak, it wants to stimulate lending, it wants to stimulate credit activity, it wants to stimulate investment, and so it cuts interest rates. Because if, so when did it cut? When's the last time it cut interest rates? Well, it cut interest rates all uh, in leading up to the crisis until basically it got to zero um, mm -hmm. in like late 2008, early 2009. So and right. then it's hard to cut rates beyond zero, although it's not impossible. But I don't. Let's get into that another time. What, what, just out of curiosity, I just had a curiosity. Yeah. What happens if you cut rates? What, what, what if you cut rates beyond zero? What the, what then occurs? So here's the you, quick. You give people some extra money. No, here's the here's the problem with cutting rates negative below zero is that if you have money in a bank account and interest rates are below zero then you're actually not going to get interest on your payment. You're actually going to, um, you know, most people get a little bit of interest on their savings accounts. You're actually going to have mm -hmm. to pay a little bit. And so what you're going to do, if you have money in the bank, you might just say, I don't want to pay this. I'm going to take my cash out of the bank and put it under underneath my bed. And, yeah. and that's when that's when that's when the stock market uh, that's crumbles. Not, that's not ideal. Starts killing themselves. That, that's not an ideal right. financial situation. So the Fed really doesn't want to go into negative interest rates. I like I right. said, there is a lot of theoretical discussion about how it could be done, and some people think it could be done, and but it's not. They would prefer not to at this point. Right. It's not. So, it's not something rates, that's advisable. Money has been priced very cheap with the idea of if money is cheap, then people will lend, people will borrow, and people will invest. And that's been the major way the economy has attempted to recover since the financial crisis by pricing money essentially at its cheapest levels in history. Right. Now, you, now, event, you don't want to keep money too cheap forever because you could get overactivity in the economy, which leads to inflation. And so, in other words, people are investing so much, you could have bubbles, you could have, you know, if all, of, let's say you had tons of new businesses springing up. You could have a shortage of workers. You could have a shortage of raw materials, and that sends uh, prices surging. And so that's inflation, and that's sort of the negative side, the the dark side of a very hyperactive economy. So right. what the Fed ultimately tries to do is it wants to keep the economy strong, but not so strong that you end up having shortage of shortages of everything and surging prices. And so when the economy starts to really gather steam. It starts to raise the cost of money a little bit, basically with the idea of tapping on the brakes a little bit. Right. And the okay. view is, and the view is that we're basically there now. Uh, unemployment has fallen to the low five percent numbers. The view is that the Fed could probably start to tap the brakes. And but, have they not? Has the Fed not intimated that it is going to raise? It is. Oh, it's it definitely. Has. It's definitely given strong suggestions. It, it's right. never said an exact date. It's never said. Um, any details, but there's been clear signals that the Fed sees the point in the relatively near future at which it can begin okay. raising Okay, so, raising okay. so let's just say that now we've got a good idea of what, what that would mean for the economy and what, yes. why why people might be interested yes. in that. Okay, so so now let's go back. Let's talk about the last couple of weeks and explain how that plays into so it. So you have this really over, you have this overvalue, you have this incredible rally in the stock market. It's lasted six years. People have made extraordinary gains. There's this view that stocks are expensive. And you have this view, so A, the market is vulnerable just on the fact that the bull market is sort of getting long in the tooth. And then you have this fear that the era of cheap money, which is, you know, kind of good for everyone, makes people want to invest, may be coming to an end. So you already have a context of a little bit of fragility here, reasons for people to be nervous. Right. 
Now, the most important thing I want to say straight off is that anyone who tells you a definitive story of why markets tumble, why they crash or anything is lying to you. No one ever knows the answer. The best we can do is make educated guesses. That's the very best we could do because the markets are so complex and you know they're the most complex machines in the world. So the idea that we can say, oh, this happened and that's why markets fell is 99% of the time a very, so when I read, so when I read a story that says like um, you know Apple Apple stumbles GE some struggles like the market tanks because of it or whatever the whatever the random thing is that people are pointing to that's really not the that's really yeah. not an explanation of what's going on. I mean, it's it's usually what you're reading is the best guess that anyone can make, right? And so often there are some things that seem fairly straightforward, but we, you know, no one could ever know for sure but, what but, drives what's but, what really made drove a market move. But writers, many writers who cover the market, will find will find try to find connective yeah, and that's and, and good reporters things that occur and absolutely, and good reporters try to find these patterns and try to make smart comments about the connection between mark. Uh, market moves and economic events and so forth. So, right. okay. so in light of that, we have this fragile situation, and you know, you've probably heard a lot. People are very concerned about what's happening with China. China is obviously yeah. a massive economy. It has it's a, historically it's been a massive consumer of commodities: oil, steel, iron ore, tungsten, zinc, nickel. Anything because they've built so many factories and they do so much manufacturing and they've built so much infrastructure, railways and highways and everything like that amid this extraordinary period of growth. So much of the world is essentially been banking on China being able to grow forever or just China being a voracious consumer of everything. And right. I mean, because because if China because if China were to and I don't want to jump the gun, but I mean, you think about just in relationship yeah. to a, a, something that people really know really well, which is Apple, right? Like if China sure. were if something really detrimental were to happen in China markets, Apple's ability to tap into China to produce goods at the at the cost that it produces them and at the speed with yes. that it produces them at would it would be massively affected by that? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's you know, you look at analysts talking about Apple and they say. Where's the growth going to come from? Everyone in the U.S. has an iPhone. like, sh- And people say, yeah, but there's this huge untapped market still in China. And that's true to some extent. But if China were to really slow down significantly, if people were to feel less wealthy, less secure, maybe they won't buy the newest iPhone. Maybe they'll... What about the, but what about the manufacturing of the iPhone? Would it have any impact on that in terms of... The ability for I mean, Chinese companies to manufacture I mean, as look, quickly and I, I I think you it would take a major serious unrest or disruption to make it so that Chinese companies couldn't manufacture the iPhone. But there is actually no. But I mean, like at the at the cost and the speed with they do they they do. Well, now. yeah, that's actually that is another factor. So as China has matured and as the economy has grown. There isn't as much cheap labor. I mean, one of the other big stories with the China story has been that in addition to all this commodity demand, which lifted the world, China had seemingly had an inexhaustible supply of cheap labor that allowed it to have an extraordinary manufacturing boom. But even that is coming to an end. 
that's the mark. People are getting more mature. The economy is getting more mature. So even the suppliers of Apple, you know, the, the Foxcons of the world have to deal with the fact that they don't have an inexhaustible supply of relatively low cost workers anymore. And so right. that, They've got sort that of a rising, reduces their a rising middle class. Yeah, exactly. And right. so even the yeah. premise that Apple could manufacture so many goods in China very cheaply, that's come under strain in recent years. So China, okay, it's, so, just, but, it's impossible. Yeah. So basically, China is a big deal. Is what it's a big deal for a lot of players. It's a big deal for U.S. based exporters. It's a huge deal for luxury goods makers. Um, you know, like European luxury goods makers are what wildly their growth is all about China. If you know, look at a company like Louis Vuitton, like so much of their sales and so much of their growth is based on China. And so China, a lot of things are happening right now, but one, they're in the midst of what appears to be a real economic slowdown, an inability perhaps to hit their growth targets. The government wants 7% annualized growth. It looks like that will be extremely difficult to achieve. They, the stock market, which had been surging for a long time, is uh, has been crashing over the last couple of months. So that is having, an, it's having a negative wealth shock that causes people to feel poorer, make fewer consumption-related purchases. It's causing even people to perhaps to lose faith in the government because the view was, well, the government people, in China. People in, you're talking about people, people in, China. in China. Yeah, because yeah. the view was that the government was omnipotent and could control markets and could essentially dictate the economy to whatever they wanted. Well, now that's coming into question. And so... A lot of there are a lot of negative things going on in China. Now, there's one other factor that's extremely important. China manages its currency. It doesn't really trade in a market like normal currency does, and it's essentially pegged uh, to the U.S. dollar. And so, the exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and the uh, Chinese yuan, their currency, is very stable. Now, setting the context, so we've talked about this big slowdown that's happening in commodities this year because China isn't consuming as much. There's this big, been this big slowdown in, uh, this big decline this year in emerging market currencies. So if you look at currencies in Brazil and Russia and Vietnam and Malaysia, they've, their currencies have been declining a lot this year. Now, why this matters is that while their currencies, when your currency declines, your goods become more competitive on a global stage because you know, if I'm buying something from someone in Malaysia for a thousand ringgit and the, and the value of a thousand ringgit just went down in dollars, suddenly I want to buy more stuff from people in Malaysia. Right. Does that make right. sense? This is, this is sort of, this is sort of the birth of China. This is China's like man, as a manufacturing behemoth. Yeah. I mean, essentially is because you know, we were right. like, Hey, wait a second. We can get really, right. you know, American was, companies were like, we can get really cheap labor and yeah. they can produce really quickly because our, you know, basically right. you know, our money is so much more value. Their our currency is so much more valuable than theirs. Right. And so this has been a the, one of the big stories of the last year has been the decline of emerging market currencies. But China's currency is pegged to the dollar. So it's one of the few emerging market currencies that hasn't fallen against is, the dollar is that a recent occur- is, that a re- is that a recent occurrence no, I mean, how, been, how long has been, been pegged to the dollar china has been managing its currency against the dollar for many years and it incrementally moves it up or down very slowly over time right but then two weeks ago or like two and a half weeks ago out of nowhere china devalued its currency by two percent and this was a big surprise and there are a lot of theories for why they did it but the obvious one is that the economy is slowing. They see other manufacturing co- 
economies, their currencies weakening, thus China was losing their relative competitive position against them. And so China weakening its currency was a way for, you know, to um, make its uh, exports a little more competitive again and hopefully boost its economy to hit its growth targets. So they and do, this so seems to have been the moment that f- freaked out the world. Like ever since then, you know, people were already sort of worried about China. They were paying attention to the slowdown. They were paying attention to the stock market crash. But it was this moment when they devalued the currency that really heightened people's attention. And, okay. uh, ever so, s- and so that was about two and a half weeks ago. Yeah. So, so let me ask you something. Let me stop right there. Is there a reason? I just this is what I really want to know about yeah. the about the fucking market. Yeah. Is there a reason when China devalued its currency to you know let's say that your your theory here? I'm sure that other people have the same theory. Is you know to stay competitive against you know yeah. uh, emerging markets. Is there actually was there actually some danger that that signaled to the market? Was there actually some was there something that that them devaluing their currency sent a signal that it, it sent to the market that would actually create so here's here's a problem maybe with the flow of money around the world or was it was it just people reacting like huge babies to a change in the in the to a slight devaluation of china's currency so this is this is a great question because i think on the one hand there is i think it's very i think there's a good case to be made that this was our our lizard brains the fear part of our brain kicking in like uh uh-oh Something weird happened in China. We've made all this money. Let's protect our money. Let's sell everything. And right. I do think that is part of it. There are, there is, it's, but there are arguments that there are real economic ramifications. And they basically go like this. If China weakens its currency, then that will encourage more countries to weaken their currency because now they want to stay competitive against China. Then what you have is a western ex- western companies that export to china do worse and worse because they're selling into an economy where their currency is worth less and b the value of the dollar rises in these situations when everyone else is cheapening their currencies and the a, a rising dollar is not particularly great for the us economy because it hurts our exporters and it, uh, it's harder for us to yeah, sell things hurts, to other people. It's harder for us to compete. So there are real ramifications hmm. to having a for having the U.S. dollar surge too quickly. Already, the U.S. dollar has been on a pretty nice run over the last couple of years. But what if it got disorderly? And so what if there were more devaluations? The dollar got stronger. What if China really fell out of bed? And so I think that the currency devaluation out of China really set off these alarm bells in people's that look already the US dollar is strong what if it gets much stronger are our manufacturers screwed also if china is cutting its currency are things much worse there than people realize could we have a true hard landing where the economy really collapses that would have all kinds of spillovers to other economies and then that's when you've seen this like rumbling sell off what we've really seen over the last uh, you know, two and a half weeks. Right. Yeah. So what happened? So what, what happened when we hit, hit this? Like, so we ended on a Friday. We had like a yeah. pretty big drop. I think the Dow yeah, dropped 500 Friday, or something. Yeah. Last Friday we had a real, it was like the first like good, like real sell off. This would have been, what was the, what was the date? Because this will air, this is going to go out on Monday. Yeah, so. so I guess uh, that was the 21st of uh, whatever month. That was August 21st, Friday, August 21st. August 21st. Yeah. 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 Then China crashed again hard on Sunday. And what we really experienced were these extraordinary dislocations on Monday. And I truly believe that for many years to come, 
the market action that we saw on Monday morning, particularly in the opening minutes of trading on Monday, people are going to go back and be examining what really happened at that time. Because obviously, there was a lot of fear. The 500-point decline on Friday freaked people out. The China crash freaked people out. But something else was still that doesn't really explain why we crashed so hard in the in the early moments of Monday if you look at, there were weird things that happened. So in the early moments of Monday trading, the shares of GE, General Electric, this is one of the most stable, blue chip, boring companies in the entire world. Its stock briefly fell 20%. Oh my God. That is insane. It bounced back almost right away. And then I, you know, it probably fell down a few percent. Apple was down like 13% at one point. This is the biggest company in the world losing billions upon billions in market cap in a matter of seconds. Furthermore, we saw this is this is you're gonna you're, you, do you know why this? No, is I mean it was this mo. It's this. You have a, th- you have no, a theory. No, honestly, you I don't really have a theory. I, I accept that there was this. It's bots, Joe. It's bots, isn't well, it? Well, there it does seem to be the increased role of computers in trading is something that people are paying more and more attention to, and so that there's you know like no human. It's very unlikely that a human say like, hey, I bought GE on Friday, now I'm going to sell it twenty percent lower when there was no development. <laughs> but a computer, right. I mean, we basically, but a computer algorithm that's forced into liquidation mode might just start firing off a lot of sell orders because some algorithm that's telling it to sell and get into cash and get safety. You know, it's a it's a very strange thing. But yeah, I mean, we don't know we. We don't know yet. I mean, basically, we like we've programmed these like systems essentially around our yeah. like fear based decision making. I mean, I actually tweeted I tweeted a joke about this, but I'm like kind of been thinking a lot about it, which is that we've presumably programmed our tr- these like essentially like AI right. trading systems, and not, not AI, but they are able to to trade without human interaction or without right. much human interaction. We've basically programmed to react like human beings in some cases, but we don't know what ro- we don't know like what a what, a, what an algorithm will do on like a wild day of fluctuation. We don't really know because you can't test it until the day's happening. Right. Well, you know, because well, a lot of these, a lot of um, things in finance are based on expected ranges. And so there'll be, um, they, you know, st- standard deviations. And they'll say like, we expect that 99% of the time or 99.9% of the time will we we could be sure that we won't lose this much money. But these things tend to break. We keep seeing these incidents where we have moves that by traditional metrics shouldn't even be happening once in a thousand years. So there are just a lot of, you know, a lot of weird things happen in markets. And it's the combination of human panic and computerized trading. And so I really, you know, it wasn't even, there was even like outside of the stock market on Monday, there were extraordinary things that happened in the currency markets. One person just said that what happened in trading of the dollar versus the yen hadn't been that crazy since the week that Lehman Brothers collapsed. I mean, it was just all around the world, extraordinary things have been happening. And, and then there have been, like, like any earthquake, there have been aftershocks. And so yesterday, we had this wild surge in the price of oil. Uh, yesterday being the... Uh, 27th just to uh no, what is that that's like people t- that's like that's like people wise. that's like people thinking that um we're going to go back to some yeah. sort of like we're going to go into some sort of mad max apocalyptic no, like hell I mean, world I, soon I, I and think, you need to hoard you need to hoard oil no, i think that's more just people thinking that it got overdone the sell-off in commodities uh i mean i like you don't your, think it's people I, imagining I like your that, that we're going to be living in like a scorched earth situation hoard barrels of oil but i think it was more that people felt that 
the market slash commodity sell off was overdone. Do you think? Do you think it's possible that at some point? Um, a rogue trader, a very wealthy rogue trader, had his brain somehow uploaded into the markets, and uh, his like AI brain is doing some some manipulations to the stock market. Is that possible? No, <laughs> I, it seems pretty <laughs> unlikely. But uh, you know, that, you are should, you sure? Make a pretty but, good movie. But though. we should Make write a good that movie screenplay for sure. No, no, that Actually, sounds like something I would be into. No, I like the um, our old, our old colleague uh, Aaron Rudkoff mentioned this week that someone should do a uh, night crawler for markets about a crazed market reporter who then tries to induce market crashes so that he can uh, he or she can report was that on idea, them. Was that idea based on the, uh, on your existence uh, by any chance? No, I would never <laughs> even think about anything like that. But I do think that'd be a no. Good but movie. we have we we did. It was a kind of a running joke at, in the, at the Bloomberg office. But you would you know. We would come up with headlines. I actually do want to talk about headlines for, for in a second, but yeah. um, coming up with like the most panic-inducing headlines you could think of for people, because because the thing is, like, it is true that like literally Bloomberg or Business Insider or Wall Street Journal or even the you know yeah. New York Times could write a story that's like you know market market destroyed in you know one day of trading, and people would lose their shit. I mean, people yeah. can read that no, headline yeah, yeah. and go. Yeah. You know, oh my God! I've got to. I got no, to get it out is of this. True. Like, and you will. You have, you know, in markets trading, I think there's a responsibility to not overdo it. And I think that um, because you don't want to like induce panic where it's not deserved, or you know, you could. There's all kinds of problems you could create with um, over errant headlines or slightly inaccurate headlines. But this is right. also really big stuff, and it's very interesting and it's very exciting. And so there is a finding that balance where you capture the appropriate level of excitement and enthusiasm without being irresponsible is uh, <laughs> tough, but it's an interesting challenge. So let's talk about that a little bit. You basically pioneered uh, a type of headline style. I mean, it's, it's sort of a riff on, you know, it's a riff on classic uh, sort of tabloid headlines almost, or like New York Post style headlines where it's really, yeah. really like you see it and you're like, I've got to read this. I've got to see what the story is. I mean, it's, it's kind of classic, you know, Classic headline writing, but you definitely changed it, altered it for the internet age. And I would say that like one of the one of the hallmarks of of business insider. I think most people associate this with business yeah. insider headlines. And I and I feel strongly and correct me if I'm wrong yeah. that you had a lot to do yeah, I with. I think me you know, and Henry Blodgett we together the two of us, and we would yeah. have lots of conversations. Well, about I think and Henry Blodgett was yeah. very influential. I think. Look, the basic idea is be direct. And the headline, and so it's like when right. stocks are smashed, stay, say stocks are smashed. And when right. it's not, when, but it's not right. It's not just direct. It's not just direct. It's also adding like a certain level of like drama. Well, it's be colorful, right? And so, so, so right. as an example, as an example, but, you know, the thing is like it is dramatic. Like people, like the, the real world. Like you know, going back, these are human stories we're talking about. People are freaking out when the when this stuff is happening. People's lives are changing. Some people are getting wildly rich. Some people right. are going from being rich to not being rich. Some people are, some people some people are, are throwing people, themselves out of a window. Some people are losing their children's uh, college fund. So these are human stories. I mean, that you know goes back to the beginning. And so I think they warrant um, writing and talk and discussion and headlines that reflect the right. full uh, but it, the full splendor of humanity. But as an example, it's like a Bloomberg, a standard Bloomberg headline. I mean, we've, you know, we've sort of altered the way, you know, you see headlines on Bloomberg. Now you've certainly had a lot of impact on that, but kind of standard Bloomberg or let's say a Wall Street Journal headline on the market crash might be, you know, Dow drops a thousand points, you know, as market stutters or something like that. Right. Right. It's just sort of a random soft, but you know, it's, here's the facts, right. 
Was it a, was a Dow dropped a thousand? Is that right or no? Uh, Nasdaq. No, there's the the Dow fell a thousand and at the right. Monday open. But now I don't know what the business letter headline was or what you might have done or maybe you had this on Bloomberg and I missed yeah. it. But it would have been something like Nasdaq crash or Nasdaq wiped out or yeah, I mean, what would you what was your headline? I, I don't <laughs> what remember what the like, crush markets crushed markets crushed. Yeah, I don't remember what the uh, what exactly anyone's headline was this Monday, but I do think that like. I suspect the Business Insider headline was more intense and more colorful than the Bloomberg one. But I do think overall, every business news outlet several years ago probably have been more uh, reserved than they are today, basically right. across the board. Right. I mean, there is there is a drama. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when this stuff is happening, there is a certain drama. I mean, we certainly had debates uh, in the office about the level... I mean, you, <laughs> you're sort of like the all caps headline guy. I mean, literally, you like doing headlines oh, yeah. in all I, caps. I don't think, I don't, like, I think that if if you if you can't put new if you can't put the headlines in all caps, then you shouldn't have even written the story. <laughs> no, I don't totally believe that. But to some extent, I believe like you know why? What was this story even worth writing if it wasn't worth screaming about? I, the the bigger your... <laughs> argument that you and I used to get in is I always wanted to go to war on the front page of Bloomberg.com, which is have one huge story right. that just says, "Bam, this is going on." Right. I you you, you would could, go to, and I want, you would go to the war story. Right. I would go to the war story on like you the falling go... price of corn, and I once got into a fight right. with the front page which is, editor. Which is, do you think? But do you think that's a good use of the war story? Do you think that's an appropriate use of the war story? The falling price of corn. I mean. Let's put it this way. In the heat of the, in the, heat of the moment, it, Let's put it this way. In the context of what we do at most news outlets, no. But in my dream news outlet where we just slam one story hard, that would, then yes. <laughs> but I don't think that g- okay. given how most news quiet. outlets weight different stories, it would be hard to justify doing that with corn. Let's put it that way. I, well, I mean with corn. But okay, so let me ask you a question. What's your favorite headline that you've ever written? Do you remember it? You know, I honestly don't. I, I don't know. Uh, Do you remember your favorite headline that you've you know ever read? You know what my read? favorite um, headline that I ever... Um, oh, favorite? I, I don't know. Oh, I hate this. You know what I like? You know, at Business Insider, we used to... Anytime there was a, a day when the market was basically slow and nothing happened, we used to have a recurring headline, stocks go nowhere on day when nothing happens, which I really liked. <laughs> you use direct- that same headline over and over again? Yeah, we, we probably used that like 50 times, but I really liked it. And so it's just like, don't read this. Nothing happened. Move on with your lives. I'm trying to figure out. We did, um, I want to say, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. We did, and I could be wrong. I could get this totally wrong. But at The Verge, we did a headline. It was sort of at the peak of um, You Won't Believe What Happens Next, which I always hated anybody riffing yeah. on that, you know, making a joke about You Won't Believe What Happens Next. Did you not? Business Insider didn't do any You Won't no, Believe no, What we Happens did, we Next. No, we didn't do that so, garbage. No, but no. we did a headline, which is like, you have to click on this, but you don't know why. I, I think I, that I, was... You know, I don't want to say we didn't do any of that garbage, because then the first thing someone's going to do is search for you won't believe on Google and Business Insider and find like 20. So I'm sure it did happen, but I don't think that was like, that was not one of our calling cards. Really? I, so I'm just trying to find this Verge headline. I'm literally typing right now, which started as a joke. Oh, yeah, here it is. May 28th, 2014. You're going to click on this, but you don't know why. Which to me is, um, I think that might have been, I think that might have been my headline. I think it's a kind of an amazing, I mean, you you have to admit when I tell you that headline, you feel compelled to click on it, don't you? Yeah. I mean, there's a mystery. Was it about? Was it about? It's a mystery to be solved. 
Oh, what was it about? Let me tell you. I don't even know. I'm looking at it right now. I'm going to share this information. This is happening live. Of course, when you listen to this, this this will not be happening live. It was about a website called Emoji Zone, which was something Ryder Rips did. Uh, I think it's essentially like, I think, it, do you know the Zoom quilt? Are you familiar with the Zoom quilt? None of these words mean anything to me. Okay. Uh, can you just uh, right like now, are you, in front of a, zone. are you in front of a computer am, where you yeah. can access the internet? I am. Can you Google Zoom quilt yes. and then and then click on the the first the first hit and just watch it for a second? Zoom quilt, zoomquilt.org, the infinitely zooming image. Yeah, can just you just me, oh. can you just click into that? Oh, I'm already I'm already getting sick. Yeah. Okay, so this oh. is just yeah. That's weird. So the Zoom quilt I recommend, and maybe I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I recommend that all people of all all of all walks of life, uh, all races, all genders, uh, just find the zoom quilt and check it out because it's one of the big greatest things that's ever been put on the internet. And it's been on the internet since like the days of e-bombs world. It's not like a new thing. It's old. I mean, it's, oh. I think it's a flash. It might be a flash file. Anyhow, I think that emoji zone is the thing that we were writing about. And it's something like a zoom quilt for emojis. But the point is it was not an important story. And I think we thought this would be fun to just throw away, do a throwaway headline on, but headline writing is interesting. I mean, I mean, I agree with your essential, like what your essential point on headline writing, which is, yeah, you know, go big, but there is a fine line between bullshit and not bullshit, you know? No, I agree. I, I agree. The, the most important thing, this is the, here's the simple rule to writing a headline and headline writing is not complicated. Well, I, I think it's very complicated. It, it says, no, no, I don't think so. Something <laughs> happens like you, t- you write a story, Josh, and let's say I'm your editor yeah, and I and you have the story and I say, what happened? And you say, oh, stocks tumbled and blah, blah, or Bank of England just made this wild decision to send the pound falling. That's the headline. Like whatever your first inclination it's, it's true. to tell your friend, this is the head. The headline is what you tell your friend is right, about. And is- so like when people want to, you know, like you go out for drinks with people who may not know finance or whatever, but they come and they say, what did you do today? And what did you uh, write about? And what you tell them in that first sentence is the headline. And that's it. I have to, I have to say a place where we, where we strongly agree and, and agreed uh, is there is something interesting about when you're trying to figure out how to share a story with somebody, how to tell somebody about a story. Yeah. And you end up in, editors often end up in these conversations where you go, oh, you know, this thing and that thing. And you're like, no, 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 just tell me what happened. And you go, like, oh, well, the bottom dropped out of this because it yeah. backs. And then you're like, oh, yeah, just that simple. That's it. Straightforward. It's, not, it's like, not like, like you're not using colorful it, language. Like, yeah. Right. And so like right. whenever like someone wants to say like have a story promoted somewhere on social or front page and maybe the headline, the existing headline is not great. And I say, what's the story about? And they just tell me in plain English. Uh, then that's the headline and that's the lesson. I have to right. go soon. Yeah, I know you do. I, and I, you know what? I so, can't believe that we burned through an hour here. Uh, it just yeah. flew by. All right. I know you have to go because you're actually in a Bloomberg uh, meeting room right now. I There's am. probably somebody standing outside of it. There's literally two people giving me ominous looks. There are, do, who are they? Do I know them? One's Michael Shane. Okay. Well, to hell with him. To hell with Michael yeah. Shane. But, who's, uh, who's the other but person? But I also have another thing I have to do. Who's the other person? Uh, I'm not sure. You don't want to know. Oh, you don't know them. A stranger, uh, a stranger at Bloomberg. Like, this sounds like this sounds like a to be continued. All right, listen, you have to come back on because we have a lot more to talk about. I'd we love only, to. This really, was a fantastic. I had a great time. Can I just say Thank something? Thank you You're, very much for having me on. Can I just say this that your ex- be, uh, your explanation yeah. of this crash that just happened is the only one that I've heard that makes any sense. I, I really appreciate that. And you're, you're a wonderful storyteller. All right, Joe, thank you for coming on. You'll be back, and uh, and that's the show. Uh, we'll be back with more tomorrow, next week, of course. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best, despite the terrible financial crisis that is about to befall them. Thank you.